Hello and welcome to the History Jar podcast. This episode covers the Stuarts. In 1603, James VI of Scotland, the son of Mary Queen of Scots and Henry Lord Darnley, became King of England. These days, we're kind of sold on the idea that there were no alternatives, but this isn't totally true. The main thing was that James had two major advantages. He was male and he also had a ready-made family. James's childhood had been complicated. His father Henry had been murdered in Kirk Field when James was less than a year old. The building blew up, but Henry was discovered in the grounds, strangled. His mother was forced to abdicate in favour of James in July 1567, before fleeing across the border into England and spending the next part of 20 years in captivity, before finally being executed at Fotheringay Castle in February 1587. And yes, that is an invitation for this. Mary went to her death dressed in a red petticoat. She was identifying herself as a Catholic martyr. So when James VI of Scotland became James I of England, the Catholics, who'd been feeling rather oppressed, felt that they were in with a chance of a decent life. They were wrong. Anyway, back to James's childhood. Having lost both his parents, he found himself in the custody of four regents during his childhood. His uncle Moray, who was Mary Queen of Scots' illegitimate half-brother, was assassinated in 1570. Mary, in her captivity in England, arranged to have the assassin paid a pension from her French income. After the Earl of Moray's death, the Earl of Lennox became the regent. He was killed the following year, in 1571. The Earl of Mar became the third regent, but died in 1572, from illness rather than something sharp. The final regent of James's minority was the Earl of Morton, who managed to restore law and order. Not that this has a happy ending. James started ruling for himself in 1579, at which point Morton's enemies accused him of being part of the conspiracy that murdered Henry Lord Darnley, James's father. Morton was executed in 1581. In 1582, James was kidnapped by Lord Gowrie and held captive for ten months, and in 1587, his mother was executed. As if all that wasn't bad enough, when James went to fetch his bride, Anne of Denmark, the seas were rather rough, um, and the vessel nearly foundered. Unfortunately, a bunch of little old ladies got the blame, or rather, witches got the blame. More than 300 of them, in fact, in and around North Berwick, which I rather suspect was most of the elderly population of North Berwick. James promptly wrote a book on the subject, and once he became King of England, it was open season on little old ladies with black cats, and a bloke called Shakespeare wrote a Scottish play incorporating three of them, inquiring when they would meet again, thunder, lightning or in rain. Though in these days it would rather depend on current COVID-19 regulations as to whether they were allowed out of their houses or not. Anyway, on the 24th of March 1603, Elizabeth I died. She'd been Queen of England for 45 years. Robert Cecil, the son of Elizabeth's great statesman William Cecil, Lord Burley, had set things up so that James would inherit without a hitch. James was the great-grandson of Margaret Tudor, the eldest daughter of Henry Tudor and Elizabeth of York. 
James headed south almost immediately. It was a bit of a tricky situation. The English weren't that keen on the Scots, and it didn't help that not only was James delighted with his inheritance, but so were all his hangers-on. Lady Anne Clifford recorded in her diary that the Scots were none too clean either, or at least Lord Erskine wasn't, because he managed to give Anne and her mother lice simply by sitting in the same room with them. That was the least of James's troubles, if the truth be told. He believed that God had made him king. He was king by divine right, in other words. Whereas Elizabeth, whose legitimacy... Legisla, I wish I could say that word. Whose legitimacy was dodgy and whose gender was second-rate, had always said that she ruled by the will of the people. And consequently, she had negotiated with her councils and with her parliaments, rather than telling them exactly what they ought to do. Of course, the relationship had been stormy, but she knew how to handle them diplomatically. In addition to which, James soon found that Elizabeth hadn't possessed a magic money tree. There had only been the one of her, and she was not exactly parsimonious, but she wasn't entirely generous. Whereas James not only had to provide for himself, but for also for his wife, Anne of Denmark, and also for his growing family. Nor did the fact that England was at war with Spain, nor inflation, help very matters very much either. One of the first problems James experienced was that not everyone in Elizabethan, or rather Jacobean times, thought that James ought to be king. The problem was that James was Scottish. So there was the old enmity between the English and the Scots to be taken into consideration. In addition, there was a statute that forbade foreign subjects from inheriting English titles or English land. So James, of course, was Scottish rather than English. And there were other claimants to the throne. So Bess of Hardwick's granddaughter, Arbella Stuart, who was the niece of Mary, Queen of Scots, through her husband, Henry Lord Darnley, because Arbella's father was Charles Stuart, the younger brother of Henry Lord Darnley, had just as good a claim to the throne as James did, and she was an English subject. Now, a number of people thought that she would be a better heir. So Raleigh was implicated in something called the main plot. Um, at the same time as the main plot was shaping up in 1603, there was also a secondary plot, which history calls the by-plot, B-Y-E. Um, now, the, the main plot um, was to replace James with Arbella, and the by-plot, which was a different plot entirely, they just happened to be running at the same time, was to simply kidnap James and force him to suspend the laws against the Catholics. So Raleigh was caught up in the main plot, which would have seen James replaced by Arbella. Raleigh defended himself. The transcript of his trial is still exists. His guilt is based entirely on the evidence provided by Lord Cobham, and Lord Cobham was not required to appear in court. So it does look very much as though Raleigh was simply got rid of on conveniently trumped-up charges. The events of 1603 and 1604 made it clear that religion was going to be a major issue, because after all, 
the by plot had been made by Catholics who wanted the, the laws against the Catholics to be suspended. Um, so the winter of 1604 saw Thomas Percy subleasing a house in Westminster and a group of men, including a certain Guy Fawkes, beginning to dig a tunnel. Now, obviously, that didn't work. Um, and the following year, on November the 5th, 1605, gunpowder, treason and plot filled the air. In 1611, the King James Bible was issued um, and in between times, James tried to unite England and Scotland, which didn't go down well with anyone. He also tried to bring a bit of law and order to the borders. He refused to call them the borders. He referred to them as the Middle Shires. He also started the plantation of Ulster by handing out confiscated lands which had belonged to Catholic earls to Protestant settlers. Um, quite a few of those settlers were borderers, um, and the borders between England and Scotland had been notorious for their unrest and cattle rustling. So he sent quite a few of those people across the Irish Sea to Northern Ireland. So James I is well and truly responsible for setting up some of the so-called troubles between the Irish Catholics and Ulster Protestants. Then, in 1612, James's handsome, intelligent and very Protestant son, Henry, died. Was he murdered? At the time, people thought so. There was some suggestion even that James had had his own son bumped off. On the other hand, the fact that Henry went for a swim in the Thames every day, yes, the very same river where all London sewerage ended up, suggesting typhoid rather than poison. In any event, without the tall and handsome son, fortunately there was a spare, and that spare was young Prince Charles. And we all know how that ended. In 1613, James's daughter Elizabeth was married off to a Protestant prince, Frederick V of the Palatinate. Elizabeth is better known in history as the Winter Queen. Frederick was elected King of Bohemia, but toppled from power within the year. According to the story, one of the Queen's children, a certain Prince Rupert of the Rhine, was only a baby at the time, and he had been left in the royal nursery. The royal carriages were about to leave the palace, and fortunately a nursemaid spied the baby, dashed down the stairs, and flung the bundle containing the baby into the carriage as it started on its journey. No wonder Rupert of the Rhine turned out the way he did. Meanwhile, back in 1613, Sir Thomas Overbury died in the Tower of London. Nothing unusual about that, you might say. But he didn't die from the usual problems. He died as a result of eating poison jam tarts. Eventually, Sir Robert Carr, the Earl of Somerset, and James I's royal favourite would be found guilty of the crime of murder, along with his wife, Frances Howard. Now, you would have thought they would have been executed, but they weren't. Eventually, they were quietly released and allowed to live out their lives in disgrace. Throughout this period, James called Parliament with the view that they should do what they were told and give him funds. Parliament told him what he could do with his impositions. Now, what that meant was that James tried to avoid calling Parliament and he became increasingly short of cash. Ultimately, as a result of that, he released Raleigh from the Tower 
and sent him in search of El Dorado. It involved a voyage up the Orinoco, during which Raleigh's eldest surviving son, another Walter, died. And of course, the search for El Dorado was for a huge stash of gold. James had also told Raleigh not to irritate the Spanish because he needed to maintain peace. He'd also been trying to orchestrate a marriage between his son Charles and the Infanta of Spain. So when Raleigh returned to Plymouth without the stash of gold, he knew he was going to certain death. He passed up several opportunities to effect an escape. He was executed on the 29th of October 1618. He described the axe as sharp medicine and he has been described in history as the last Elizabethan. And for those of you who like a thoughtful little gift, his head was embalmed and presented to his wife, the irrepressible and totally devoted Besh Throckmorton. But that's another story. In 1620, the Pilgrim Fathers set off for America, and in 1623, Prince Charles, fed up with waiting for his Spanish bride, set off to meet her himself, with his father's new favourite, the Duke of Buckingham. The pair wore large hats and false beards, because no one would recognise them like that, obviously. Um, In fact, they were shadowed across Europe to Madrid, where their arrival caused a huge amount of embarrassment. Ultimately, the Spanish marriage didn't take place, uh, and Charles rather resented them as a consequence. But he did return from Europe with an interest in art, which sounds fairly innocuous, apart from the fact that the art he liked smacked the Puritans of Catholicism. Even worse, in 1624, James arranged the marriage of his son to a French princess, Henrietta Maria, who, aside from being French, which was nearly as bad as being Scottish, was also Catholic. The following year, James died, leaving his son a book on how to rule, um, which spent a lot of time talking about the divine right of kings, a French wife, and of course his favourite, Steenie, the Duke of Buckingham. James is famous for being the wisest fool in Christendom, for allegedly knighting a side of beef, for wearing a stab-proof vest, and for selling baronetcies. Bishop Williams at his funeral was rather kinder and called him the British Solomon. Charles had become heir to the throne in 1612 when his brother Henry took a dip in the Thames, caught typhoid in all probability, and died. Charles had been destined for the church. He was the one who was a bit weakly and was forced to wear iron boots as a child, um, and... His governess had had to persuade his father not to cut the strings beneath his tongue um, because of his stammer. By 1618, Charles had a bit of a bromance going on with his father's favourite, the Duke of Buckingham. The Duke of Buckingham had recognised that Charles was the future, so he did his best to cultivate Charles. Um, James had wanted to be seen as a peacemaker, so had tried to sit on the European fence when it came to religion, which is why he was trying to arrange a marriage for Charles to Spain, which was Catholic, and had arranged a Protestant match for his daughter Elizabeth. Charles, on the other hand, who hadn't had a good experience in Madrid because he hadn't come home with a beautiful bride, wanted war with Spain. 
now. Unfortunately for Charles, when he did declare war on Spain, the Duke of Buckingham's attack on Cadiz, which had been designed to remind people of the good old days when Gloriana was in charge, was a total disaster. Then, having married a French princess, Charles managed to argue with the French as well, assisting the Huguenots, the Protestants, at La Rochelle. It, 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 all in all, it wasn't a rip-roaring success, and then Buckingham got himself assassinated. Up until that point, Charles and Henrietta Maria hadn't had a particularly good relationship, but the removal of the third party from the marriage meant that the couple became devoted to one another. Peace with France happened in 1629, and with Spain in 1630, at which point Charles dissolved Parliament and began his personal rule, raising funds through things like ship money and archaic prerogative rights. His enemies described these years as the Eleven Years' Tyranny, but in the great scheme of things, it was all very low-key. Look at Europe. Charles's nephews, Rupert, the one who'd been hurled into the carriage when he was a baby, and his younger brother, Morris, were taking parts in all kinds of conflict, grounded in religious disharmony. Now, no one ever really took the Duke of Buckingham's place as the royal favourite. Um... The next nearest person was Thomas Wentworth, and in 1633 he was sent off to become the Lord Deputy of Ireland. The idea was that he was going to civilise the locals, bring about religious conformity, and make Ireland self-sufficient, all for the benefit of the Crown, obviously. These policies managed to irritate everybody. And then, rather unfortunately, Charles attempted to stamp uniformity of religious belief on Scotland, which resulted in a lot of Bibles and small stalls being thrown around in Scottish churches, followed by the Bishop's War. The outcome wasn't brilliant. Charles found himself having to pay the Scots £850 a day, and that's while they were occupying bits of the North. Charles called Parliament to raise funds. It's called the Short Parliament because Charles called them specifically to raise the taxes for the money that he needed to to take the Scots to task. Meanwhile, Parliament, the Knights and Burgesses, wanted to discuss the various crown abuses of the previous 11 years. Charles did not wish to have that conversation, so he dissolved Parliament, didn't get any money, and promptly lost the Scottish War. Parliament had to be called again in 1640. The Parliament of 1640 is called the Long Parliament because technically it went on and on throughout the First English Civil War, though obviously there were long periods when there were no MPs in Parliament. Stafford, meantime, was removed and ultimately, thanks to Parliament... To be fair, Charles was deeply distressed that he'd actually... conformed to the execution of someone who'd been loyal to him. Now, to make matters worse, there was a rebellion in Ireland. News of various Protestant massacres galvanised strong opinion. The figure of 154,000 people who had been massacred was suggested. Really, the figure was nearer 4,000. But the graphic news pamphlets of the day had done their work. Charles needed an army, but Parliament wouldn't give him one. 
Instead, they issued the Grand Remonstrance in December 1641, listing a variety of things that they said Charles had done wrong. Charles took umbrage and left London for York. By the spring of 1642, Parliament and the King were taking steps to raise armies. All the counties were receiving letters. One letter was from Parliament, one letter was from the King. But essentially, it were, they were both commissions of array. They were being requested to gather their men and meet the King or Parliament on a given day, at a given time, so that an army could be formed. As a result of Charles's poor political judgment and his belief in the divine right of kings, the three kingdoms found themselves involved in a protracted civil war. Basically, it wasn't going to be a good decade. The starting date of the first civil war is usually taken as the 22nd of August 1642, when Charles I raised his standard in Nottingham. The denizens of Nottingham Castle probably were a bit peeved by this when Oliver Cromwell turned up and knocked the castle down later on. Ultimately, Charles was labelled as a man of blood, which seems a bit unfair on a personal level as he was a civilised man who loved art, his gardens and his family. Unfortunately, it didn't make him an effective king. Essentially, in terms of the First English Civil War, in 1643, the Royalists won, but couldn't get to London. Prince Rupert, in charge of the cavalry, was really good at charging down the enemy, but then kept going after the fleeing soldiers, or took a lively interest in looting the baggage dragons rather than getting on with the job in hand, which was winning the battle. The north and west of England were in Royalist hands, as was part Wales. Parliament held key ports, much of the South, and of course London. The turning point for the First English Civil War was July the 2nd, 1644, with the Battle of Marston Moor. By April 1645, Parliament's new model army was in the field, with its centralised funding and centralised direction, not to mention assorted talented generals, including a certain Oliver Cromwell and Thomas Fairfax both of whom were granted permission to retain their roles in the army as well as remaining members of Parliament. The First Civil War came to an end on May 5th, 1646, when Charles surrendered to the Scots at Newark. The Second Civil War occurred in 1648 and the Third in 1650-51. The Second Civil War saw the siege of Colchester and on the 30th of January 1649, Having been tried by a special court where he refused to plead, Charles was, of course, beheaded. If Charles had shown himself liable to changing his mind and being deeply untrustworthy on occasion, in his death he demonstrated personal bravery. Charles is a controversial monarch and his wife, Henrietta Maria, the most important of the Stuart consorts, simply because she elicited so much hatred and also because she was such a strong character. During the Civil War, she was known as the Generalissima. She had to flee England in 1644. It's also interesting to note that her eldest son, who would eventually become King Charles II, 
would not permit her to interfere with policy or his relation with his council in the way that his father had. Now that brings us to the end of the early Stuarts and I'm going to bypass the Commonwealth period simply on the grounds that this particular set of podcasts is about the monarchs, as in no plan like yours to study history wisely. So that brings us on to books Um, and I definitely recommend Sarah Griswood's book Arbella, England's Lost Queen, which is about Arbella Stewart. Um, It's impeccably researched, but reads a bit like a novel. Um, She's the granddaughter of Bess of Hardwick, um, and she was born and raised in the belief that one day she would succeed Elizabeth I. And Elizabeth actually promoted that idea when she herself was too old to play the marriage game that she played for most of her reign in terms of foreign policy. She used Arbella. Arbella found herself by the end of Elizabeth's reign as a virtual prisoner in Hardwick Hall um, and she was allowed to go to court because obviously James was her cousin Um, but her fate was to make a forbidden marriage um, and she ended up dying alone in the tower and was largely written out of history for a good long while so she, she certainly now takes her place in the history books. Another strong-minded lady is Lady Anne Clifford, and you can access her diaries, um, edited by D.G.H. Clifford. Um, Now, she writes a set of diaries, um, and she details sort of hugely important events as well as trivial events they cover her life um from her childhood um she she was actually she saw the funeral of queen elizabeth i um to the point where she is virtually imprisoned um to in in the house of the the fourth earl of pembroke um and she she fights to succeed to her father's lands which she successfully does um if you're more interested in witches then tracy borman her book entitled james the first and the english witch hunt and the actual main title is witches is a really interesting read um, and it also tells the story of the death of the Earl of Rutland's sons, which the Duke of Buckingham was implicated in. So, interesting stuff. Leander de Lisle's book, After Elizabeth, um, tells the story of King James um, and, and it looks at the, the plots and the intrigues um, and the difficulties that there were um, in terms of religion between Catholic and Protestant interests. In terms of Charles I, Leander de Lisle has also written a book called White King, Charles I, Traitor, Murderer, Martyr. Um, most biographers of Charles I either see him as the villain of the piece, a particularly weak king, or they see him more in the quality of martyr. Um, So Leander de Lisle sort of draws on the enormity of regicide to the English. Um, 
And she sort of presents two views of the king, a man who was incredibly foolish on occasion, but also personally very brave. Um, and Linda Porter, Linda Porter, um, who I think she wrote the, the book I've got downstairs on the bookcase is about Catherine Howard. Uh, I'm sure it is. But the one in front of me at the moment is entitled Royal Renegades. And it's the story of the children of Charles I and the English Civil War. Obviously, there are very many books about the English Civil War. Um, and I don't propose to go through all of them at this point. Um, but I hope you've enjoyed this very swift run through of the early Stuarts. And the next podcast will be about the later Stuarts. So that will be Charles II, his brother James II, and... Um, Mary and William, or even William and Mary, and finally Anne, whose relationship with her various female favourites was depicted in the recent film The Favourites. Well, I think that's about all for now. I hope you're all well. Um, I hope you're finding plenty to read and to keep you entertained. And I look forward to talking to you next time about the later Stuarts. Bye! <laughs>